0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicas Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, January 26, 2020, and this is show number 768. This week's show is going to be a blast. We've got an interview about an AI-based baby monitor and one of my favorite interviews all about a smart-connected lobster trap. Oh, really? It's really cool. And it solves an actual problem. It is one of my favorite interviews. Then I'll tell you about a wicked cool AI-based transcription service that can do amazing things for free. We'll get back to interviews after that with a modular action camera that can also be a 360 camera. And we'll learn how you can, take, uh, you can make fancy cocktails at home with a fancy new device. Then we'll have 60 Minutes of Terror with another installment of Security Bits with Bart shots. But before we dig into the show, I want to give the live audience fair warning. There will not be a live show on Sunday, the 2nd of February, Super Bowl Sunday. And I've tried to do the show on Super Bowl Sunday, and I'm often quite lonely in the live show while everyone else gets to watch commercials and find out why Mr. Peanut was killed off. Also, all weekend, Steve and I will be doing various projects at Lindsay's house. I'm going to be figuring out why her Netgear Orbi mesh system isn't delivering enough of the Wi-Fi's, and Steve is going to be installing their new Ecobee smart thermostat and their Rachio smart sprinkler system. I'm also going to be patching a drywall hole in my future granddaughter's room. As you can see, there's no place to squeeze in a live show at all. The show will, of course, come out next week. Might be early, or it might be on Monday. I haven't figured that out just yet. But I repeat, no live show. You can still go into the live show chat room at podfeet.com slash chat and talk about the fate of Mr. Peanut, though, if you like. In this week's installment of Programming by Stealth, Bart explains his new plan for both the content of Programming by Stealth and the way the show notes are created and presented to you. Bart has noticed that because we put a challenge solution and new content into the same show, the solution kind of gets short-changed. And that's really a shame because there's so much he can teach by explaining the whys behind the decision of his solutions to the challenges he gives us. The new plan is to have the challenge solutions be standalone shows, and then the new content will be standalone shows as well. We'll be having more time to do our challenges with this new plan. I'm excited because I've enjoyed the extra time we've had with our currency converter challenge, allowing us to enhance our solutions and be, you know, more creative. I've been having a blast with it. So this week's installment is a review of why he made certain decisions on how to solve the last programming by sales challenge, which was to add the ability for the user of our currency exchange web app to enter a a value to be converted to the different currencies. Bart is also completely re-architecting all of his web presence stuff, including his programming by Stealth show notes. His new online presence will be at his site, bartificer.net, and PBS itself will be at pbs.bartificer.net, and uh, that link is actually to a GitHub page. Now, I know that sounds crazy, and Bart's going to tell us more about it, but this is going to allow him to be much more creative and spend less time faffing about as a system admin. This is very much a work in progress, and we expect a few learning opportunities along the way. With all that said, you can find the show notes to this week's installment of Programming by Stealth at pbs.bartificer.net. All right, let's get started with our first interview from CES. I'm at the Cubo booth with Brian Lynn, and what he doesn't know is that both of my uh, my daughter and my uh, daughter-in-law are pregnant. And so it seems like a good place to stop by and check out the Cubo uh, baby monitor.
1: Yes, definitely. Hi, uh, welcome. Thank you for stopping by. Uh, Cubo is uh, one of the first AI-based uh, baby monitors. It's designed to pro- provide proactive alerts for parents to be able to know the current status of their babies. Uh, right now, there's a lot of new monitors like coming out that's doing like breathing monitoring. But we, we believe that breathing modeling is a bit, you know, not as proactive as it should because by the time baby is having breathing problems, it's actually a bit too late. Okay. So we like to have proactive notification. So our alert is the first one is the face cover alert. So when the baby's face being covered, it sends a notification to you.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. The
1: second one is a roll over. About, about third, the third month, the baby starts rolling over. But because they are very their neck is very right at that moment, they can't really turn it back. So, but, you know, there are chances that when the baby flip over and then cover it down, it, it's, it's kind of danger, you know, for the baby. So we also have the uh, flip over alert, also have the obviously crying alert, as well as the danger zone where you can draw a space within the crib so that, you know, the baby is trying to reach over a certain area of the crib, it will send an alert to you.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, so that's what it does. What I'm looking at uh, is it looks like a lamp. we've got a a white pole with what looks like a a little bird on it a white bird with kind of a wood ball inside exactly So so that's unusual this
1: is the camera so this is a cubo. It actually have two, two stand position. One is the regular stand. This is where you can put it on the on the shelf and monitor the room or the, the movement. But this one, the, the crib stand, is actually the one that we focus on. It's the one that sits right on top of the crib. For example, right now this is the stand. You so have a baby cri- here. Uh, yes, you have a baby. Okay. And you can smile at it. <laughs> so right above the crib, that way we can provide more accurate detections. As well as you know when the baby is sleeping on the crib, we can tell what's going on with the baby.
0: Okay, well that looks pretty cool. So uh, when do you expect to take this to to market?
1: We're essentially available in Amazon right now. Oh, Uh, we we have We launched in crowdfunding earlier this year. Uh, In June, we launched Indiegogo. So we were able to successfully sold about 3,000 units globally, 40 countries. And we were actually, the most surprising part is we deliver in in about two months. So we start fulfilling three months after our, our crowdfunding campaign. So we finished all the delivery by October and then we have been selling on Amazon since.
0: Wow, I don't think anybody does that. That's yeah. crazy. So it's called Cubo AI, Cubo AI uh, baby, baby monitor AI. and yeah. uh, best place to find it is on Amazon Amazon's then.
1: Amazon's good. It's uh, 4.7 star right now on uh, Amazon reviews. So I uh, like like give you a, you know a general idea of you know how the uh, our customers like our products. So.
0: Right. so and what's your price point on this?
1: Uh, it's listed at $2.99 but I think during the holiday it was on sale for one ninety nine. Well
0: that's just a big old tease just now after the holidays, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean with there's promotions here there, so uh, you know, you know, log on to us, pay attention to us and you know right. take chance.
0: Very good. Thank you very much, Brian. Appreciate your time. All right, thank you. I get a lot of press announcements, and uh, I have to feed through a lot of them, but I look for the unusual, and I think I may have found it here. We're going to talk to uh, Nicolas Boitin. Exactly. I got that right? And we're going to talk about a connected uh, fishing trap, I think. Really? Is that right?
2: It's exactly the point. Uh, when we was in Brittany, west side of France, we tried to uh, to fish with a trap, a traditional trap, some lobster. And for some reason, when we you, you put this... Trap inside the sea, you don't see anything. You don't know where it is, you don't know if it's like this, or whatever. With this uh, you system- You don't know if
0: anything is in it either.
2: Yeah, either. The, the matter is, uh, sometimes you get lots of fish, sometimes you don't get any lobster, you know? So, with this application, it's really easy to do. We had a simple box just uh, here, which is uh,
0: describe some things. uh, It's audio as well as video. So what he's pointing at is a is a buoy, and he's at you've added a box below that. Exactly, and uh, here inside we have um, a cam, and uh, a camera inside the trap itself. Inside the trap,
2: this cam is connected through cable to um, this uh, to the buoy. Buoy, yes. Okay, (laughs) and the buoy is connected to our main data center. Yeah, because we have a service provider
0: oh, okay. uh,
2: which is delivering internet access and so on in west side of France. And uh, we connected this uh, buoy uh, to our server and uh, with intelligence artificial, uh, we received a push on our cell phone. Like uh, here, as you can see, we can see inside it that you receive, uh, uh, for example, a uh, lobster.
0: So we're looking right now at the TV, it's got a, uh, we're watching the inside of a of a trap yeah. so and there's an check. octopus in there and uh, maybe a sponge or something and every once in a while maybe a lobster,
2: right? Right, exactly the point. And so, so you get a
0: push notification yeah, on you your get, phone. and
2: uh, the, the phone is uh, saying if it's a lobster or a fish.
0: Oh, okay, that's why you they, said that artificial intelligence yes. is telling you whether you've actually exactly. got lobster. You don't want to exactly. pull it up if you so don't have lobster
2: yet. when you are in your house and say... Uh, Look at your cell phone and say, hey, I got to go to, to, to put my trap because there are some lost area inside it, you know?
0: Why well, go out and check and check and check yeah, and check so if you can be It's very
2: well for the environment, you know, because you don't uh, uh, use gas oil to, with your boat to say to have nothing. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh,
0: yeah, yeah right. Entrance, and wasting uh, time, right? Yeah.
2: This is the point, as you can see here.
0: So the name of the product is?
2: Ayo Trapster.
0: Io Trapster And the company is?
2: It's GSC.
0: GSC. And yeah. where would people find, uh, to be able to find this online?
2: Uh, GSC.com and Iotrasper.com.
0: Very you can good. That
2: loans the application on the store.
0: Now, when do you expect to have this available? Uh, let's say we
2: have the pre-order for the um, meeting of the CEOs right now. So we have hundred build systems that we can sell with a special discount price to receive a notification from our customer to let them know if it's good enough or if we have to. So you're kind better. of in trial runs yes. at this
0: point. So now you mentioned that your network is available in France. Yes. Exactly. Any, any other countries? And
2: yes. It's worldwide based.
0: Oh, it is worldwide yes. now. Okay.
2: We have a SIM server inside it and we can connect it all over the world.
0: Wow, that is fantastic. This is really cool. So this again was the IO Trapster from gsc.com.
2: Exactly. gsc.com.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, was I right? Is that hilariously cool? I mean, it sounds really dopey that they're going to put smarts and and uh, AI in a lobster trap, but you can see that it solves a real problem. I love that you have probably figured out that I create my content as a podcast and also as a series of blog posts. I've found over the nearly 15 years of podcasting that I don't speak well at all as a solo speaker without a script. While I can sound articulate when speaking on mic to another person, when I'm alone, my speech is filled with ums and ahs and I sound really dopey. I even tried just writing bullet points to remind me of what I wanted to say, but I found that I was writing full sentences and then editing them down to bullet points. I realize that those are the, there are those who would rather read than listen, so why not j- just give them the full text? Why go to all the work of converting sentences to bullet points if I could give people the full text? But this process certainly is not for everyone. In fact, I don't know anybody who does it this way. Over the years, though, I've gotten lots of positive feedback for providing the script of my shows. I've heard from people with severely limited bandwidth who can't listen to the audio, to a guy who is deafblind and reads the show on his braille display. So, what if you've got the audio content and you want a transcript of what was said? Even if you're not a podcaster, what if you have meetings where you'd like the full text for later reference? Transcription services are enormously expensive and take a lot of time because it's a really annoying thing to do by hand. For years, people have been trying to create automated ways to do transcription, and I think Otter.ai might finally deliver on that dream. Remember the review Andy Dolph did about QLab for timing audio and video? He was a guy that was talking about music timing to go with a Christmas train. When he sent that in, he only sent in the audio. I wrote back and I asked him whether he had a script for it so I could make a blog post. And he said that he hadn't written one, but that he'd get me one. A few minutes later, he sent me a nearly perfect transcription of his recording. Andy explained that the tool he used was a speech-to-text app from otter.ai. Now, before I tell you a single thing about this tool, hold on to your hats for the price. Otter.ai is free for 600 minutes of transcription per month. That is crazy pants. The premium plan is only $100 a year for 6,000 minutes per month, and premium users get even more options than free users, and I'll be highlighting a few as we get into it. Now that you know that otter.ai is inexpensive, you're probably thinking, well, it's probably not very good. This is where you'd be wrong. I made a short recording recently for the Mac Geek asking Dave and John a question. So I had this little tiny audio file. I used that recording as a test of otter.ai. I dropped the M4A file into the web app at otter.ai. It immediately started processing the file. And a few minutes later, I was notified that the transcript was complete. The resultant text was 239 words, and other than where I stumbled over a word and a couple of very technical words that it didn't get right, it only made three mistakes. That is a 98.7% accuracy rate. What's your accuracy rate when typing? Mine is not 98.7, I can tell you that. Now, I know if you're just rambling into a microphone, you wouldn't be as articulate as the practice monologue that I had submitted to Dave and John, but still, that's pretty amazing. I made a video for the show notes, which would make no sense to play for the audio podcast, where you can see otter.ai reading back the transcript while you listen to me talk. You can see why it made a few mistakes here and there, like writing p space list when I said P lists. In the view I show you in the video, you can listen and edit at the same time. They say that if you do edit your text, that helps the engine to learn, which is very cool. You can slow down the speech and speed it up with with keystrokes, which is really useful too for doing the editing. I started thinking about how expensive it is for Don McAllister to have closed captions for the hearing impaired on his video tutorials and screencasts online. And I wondered whether this might work for his production workflow. There's not just the cost, but the turnaround speed also affects the price he pays for human transcription. If you can wait a week, it's less expensive than if you want it in 24 hours. Now, he's worked these extra days into a parallel path for his workflow, but what if he only had to wait, say, an hour instead of days to get a transcript? If this works, it could be a boon for making YouTube content accessible as well. For closed captions, what you need is called an SRT file, which stands for subrip subtitle file. An SRT file is not just text, it's text with timestamps, so you can just drop it into the video file, and it syncs right up. Otter.ai calls your recording transcripts conversations. If you select a conversation, you have options to export. Free users can export to the clipboard or to a plain text file, but that's it. The premium users, again, remember it's only 100 bucks a year, they not only get 6,000 minutes per month, they also get extended export options including .docx, .pdf, and the .srt file you need for video subtitles. I guarantee you that would be well worth the price for Don if the quality is good enough. I tested Otter.ai on one of my Screencast Online video tutorials by exporting the audio out of ScreenFlow. I was too lazy to listen to all 8,734 words that otter.ai transcribed for me to check for mistakes, but I did count for the first 900 words. In 900 words, it made six legitimate mistakes, or 99.3% accuracy. And I do have to point out, every single one of those mistakes was when I didn't clearly say the word. Like, uh, for example, I said max at one point, and it wrote Max. Well, in context, maybe it should have figured that out, but, you know, still, that's pretty good. I know uh, what I said from content, uh, context, but I could see a human transcribing it exactly as Otter.ai did. Now, I'm not counting words it couldn't possibly know or capitalization it wouldn't know about in my 99.3% accuracy rating. I also found that punctuation accuracy varied depending on the style of speech that I gave it. Now, I'm a complete novice at doing subtitles, but I really wanted to see if this could work for video subtitles, especially if I could help Bossman Don. You can pay month to month with otter.ai, which is great if you only occasionally need the advanced capabilities, so I ponied up 10 bucks to do an experiment. I exported my shiny new transcript from otter.ai to an SRT file on my disk using all of the default options. I poked around in the menus of ScreenFlow for how to import a caption file and how to get it to show up on screen. When I imported the SRT file, again with 8,734 words, it put it, all of it into the first 23 seconds. I was baffled on why it didn't import the entire 47 minutes of text. I did a ton of searching online and both the ScreenFlow web pages and on Otter.ai site, but I couldn't find any clues to why it did this. I went back to the export options for SRT files, and I found things about adding line breaks automatically, max number of lines, and a few other things, and I fiddled with those dials, but it didn't solve the problem. I looked at the imported text inside the caption field in ScreenFlow, and I discovered that there was a lot more than 23 seconds worth of transcript packed into that caption for 23 seconds. I found the end of the text it packed into 23 seconds, and it looked back, and then I looked back at the transcript in otter.ai. That giant segment of text stopped at the exact same point in the transcript where otter.ai had made a paragraph break. Ah, now I'm on to something. I must have to get rid of the paragraph breaks over in the transcript. Well, after I did that, instead of just having it right up to that paragraph, now the entire 47 minutes worth of transcript was crammed into that 23-second video segment. I shot off a note to otter.ai tech support confessing that I was a noob about doing uh, transcripts and trying to import SRT files, and I went to bed. Their help system said to expect expect help in a day or two. In the morning, with a fresh brain, I looked at ScreenFlow again, and I immediately figured out what was wrong. There was nothing wrong with otter.ai. When creating a video in ScreenFlow, you do a lot of editing, so the video and audio tracks get all chopped up into short segments. 23 seconds was the length of the first audio segment in my file. Clearly, importing captions put them all into the first audio segment it finds. So I grabbed this entire audio track of all these little tiny pieces in ScreenFlow, and I deleted it, and then I imported the audio track I'd exported in the first place to upload to otter.ai to get the transcript. So now I had one single 47-minute audio clip. After I did that, I imported the SRT file one more time, and it worked perfectly. I now have a 47-minute, accessible to the hearing-impaired video tutorial, and the total cost was $10. Now, I don't know what the best rates are on the market, but I saw a tweet from The Verge that transcription service Rev, which is the one Don uses, is raising their prices to $1.25 a minute. So this one minute video would have cost $37 if transcribed by Rev. And for my $10, I still have 5,953 minutes of audio I can transcribe this month. Now, I've shot off a render of the video to Don and the team, and I can't wait to hear if this is as big of a deal as I think it is. They are excited to run their own tests, and they're going to compare Rev to Otter.ai to see how well it stacks up. All right, now let's go back to normal people and how you might want to use it for Otter.ai. You don't have to submit a pre-recorded audio file to Otter.ai. You can just talk directly to the web app via your internal or big girl microphone and ramble out your thoughts. When I tried this method, it seemed to have a lot more trouble figuring out when to put in a period versus a comma than it did in my practice speech. It made zero textual mistakes in about a minute of speech, which like I said, is a lot better than I can type. Now, while you're babbling into your mic, Otter.ai will be transcribing real time. It's kind of distracting, so I tried not to watch. When you're done recording, there'll be a little notice telling you it's processing, and then you'll be able to see your transcript and listen along and edit, as I described earlier. I was poking around in the help files, and then I discovered they have apps for Android and iOS. The apps for your mobile devices can do pretty much everything that the web app can do, and maybe even a little more. You can edit, export, and even create a cute little tag cloud. Can't do that in the web app. They suggest that if you uh, use a phone, put it in the middle of the room at a meeting and let Otter.ai create a transcript for you. I'm not sure how well that's going to work, because they also suggest that your transcription accuracy will go up if you can get closer to the mic. They suggest other use cases for the tool, like simply recording your ideas with it, so you get a text transcription. Here's another idea. How many people have tried to record their elderly parents or friends telling their stories of their childhood that they want to be preserved? With Otter.ai, you could get the stories not just in their own voices, but a text transcript as well. Maybe you want to record your own memoirs and want to think it out extemporaneously first and edit the text later. There's so many cool possibilities with what you can do with otter.ai. And remember, this kind of transcription I'm talking about costs you zero dollars. It doesn't cost anything. You can share your conversations with other otter.ai users. Pat Dengler and I tested sharing conversations with each other, and they simply showed up in a folder called Shared With Me. Surprisingly, I was able to edit her transcription, and she could edit mine. I could also just add little comments to the text, which seemed to be a little bit more polite. Once you've added someone to a shared project, you can ch- change their privileges from edit to comment to simply view. When you share conversations with someone, it creates a group automatically. I tapped on the group for Pat, and in there I could not only see what she had shared with me, but the conversation I had shared with her. AI even has organization tools. You can create named folders and move any conversation into them. I can see it getting a big mess in Otter.ai pretty quickly if they didn't have these nice organization capabilities. I flipped back and forth between my Mac on the Otter.ai web app and my iPhone and iPads and their dedicated iOS apps, and it all worked perfectly. I mean, it was syncing instantaneously between all of them. It worked really, really well. I am super excited about Otter.ai and what it could mean to accessibility. Everyone wants to do the right thing and provide transcripts, but until now, it was prohibitively expensive. The ability to transcribe meetings, interviews, and even your own notes for little to no cost is absolutely fantastic. If I've gotten you excited about otter.ai, I've included a referral link in the show notes. You get a free one-month premium pass, and I think I do too, if you use the link I put in the show notes. My friend Pat Dangler said, i got to stop by the Insta360 booth because they've got a cool new camera. So I'm here with Michael Shaboon, who's going to tell us about the, what is it called, the Insta360 One R. How are you doing today?
3: I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for coming over. Yeah, you're pretty excited today, aren't you? Uh, it's day two of CES. I still have all my energy. So, uh, but, but I'm excited because of this new camera that we just released. And it's been, uh, it's been cooking in our oven for quite a while and uh, we're really excited to, to finally be able to show it off to consumers. So this isn't just a 360 camera, is it? No, it's uh, it's actually the world's first modular action camera. And it has uh, three different lens and sensor options that are fully removable. And you can you can interchange each of the lenses and sensors to, to meet the demand of whatever you wanna shoot. So, what- so
0: that's almost like an SLR, being able to change change lenses.
3: We, we took a lot of notes from what the DSLR market has has proven over the years, and, and what we've what we've realized is uh, for a photographer or a videographer, there's never going to be one camera and lens combination that can suit all of your shooting needs. So what we're doing is we're giving our users options without having to buy additional camera bodies or, or lug around a ton of gear that, that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do.
0: Oh, okay, okay, so why don't you describe what you have in your hands here?
3: Sure, so what I have here is uh, the base model of the Insta360 ONE R, and it comes with three modules. It has a, a bottom-mounted battery that clicks on and off. And it's red, so it looks cool. It is red, yeah, it's our it's our first red-trimmed camera. Um, and, and then the other two modules basically separate, you just pull them apart, and we have the control module that has a built-in touchscreen, so you can select all of your settings directly on the camera without having to use the app if you don't want to. And then the other piece is the lens and sensor module. So for the 360 version, it it shoots up to 5.7K uh, resolution, uh, similar to our 1x camera, but with this, it's been fully upgraded in terms of the uh, the, the algorithm that goes into the uh, the computations of the of the image quality. So and sewing the stitch, stitching the
0: two halves together.
3: Well, essentially, the stitching is. I mean, that's our bread and butter. We're fantastic at our stitching, and that's what make elevates our brand above the other 360 cameras. But with this, you're able to record H.265, and you're going to be able to output ProRes from this camera as well. So
0: what it,
3: it blurs the lines between consumer ease of use and prosumer and professional power
0: that, that folks need to actually monetize off of it. And so, so what he's holding in his hand are two one-inch cubes, they look like. The one is the uh, is the lens. Lens and sensor combined, right, into one one cube. Yes. And then the other side is where the uh, the touch screen is.
3: Yes. So so what happens is once you combine all three pieces together, the uh, the battery charges the control module, which and then shares power to the camera module.
0: Okay. Okay. So-, so by the way, he's pulling these apart and sticking them together very easily. It's not like it's some big cumbersome latching things together. He just shoves them together, right? Exactly. And so so let me show you this next one. So. Um, what we realized
3: is, you know, we obviously started in the 360 world. Um, yeah, right after I said it was easy. We're <laughs> there you go. You had it backwards. Me huh? too, right? So, well, well, it doesn't matter, right? So so here's one cool thing. You can create a traditional action camera with the screen facing behind you, or you can take this lens and you can flip it the other way and you can have a vlogging camera.
0: Oh, oh, wow. That is really cool. So Now the lens you just attached, that's no longer. Now we are talking 360, right? You've added a different module.
3: This is a fixed
0: angle 4K 60 lens that is an
3: equivalent of about a 16 and a half millimeter so it's a it's a wide lens that you can interchange on and off and what we realized was 360 shooting is great but there's not always going to be a need to shoot everything in 360 so for those moments where where you you don't want 360 you can pop on this lens and shoot standard 4k 60 content or you can go 4k 30 24 frames you can you can
0: yeah you explained like if you're if you're skiing you don't need to see the back of your shirt while you're recording the skiing so why have 360 exactly exactly and then
3: the uh the kind of hero piece and all of this the thing that we're the most excited about is the third module and let me hold some lenses here oh i got it it's got i've been doing this all day so with the third module, uh, this is a, uh, the first collaboration we've had with Leica. Leica co-engineered this lens, and, and the really unique thing about this is it's the world's first one-inch sensor for an action camera.
0: One-inch sensor, that's a lot of light. So, and this
3: is tiny. I mean, you can, you can I'll put this, the pieces together, and you can feel it, it weighs about 150 grams total, and, uh, and, that's, and that will shoot up to 5.3K resolution fixed angle. From that lens.
0: Wow. So what? It, what is the angle on that?
3: So this, uh, the, this one is about a fourteen and a half millimeter equivalent. So it's also
0: really wide. Oh, wow. Wow. That is, and it's cool looking too. These three modules together. You're right. This doesn't weigh hardly anything, and that's a small package. That makes my uh, Micro Four Thirds camera look massive.
3: <laughs> and, and what's what, what's really cool about this camera is. Um, the ecosystem that we're building around it. So if you can see here on the camera, there's a screw on and off lens protector. So the first thing that always gets damaged with action cameras and 360 are the lenses.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, yep, yep. We had to get a new one because that was, it had a scratch on it.
3: Exactly, and having these uh, ridges on here allows us in the future to create uh, filter options and attachable lenses and and more pieces that will customize your, your camera set. And and the other thing about the engineering of this camera is that uh, we realized, Um, if we create a modular setup Folks at home will actually be more cost-effective because they don't need to upgrade their camera body every year when a new one comes out. And we can put out additional modules much faster than producing a completely new camera.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you'd have to think up a new camera model number and it'd be hard and confusing.
3: Yeah, right. We're we're just, you know, we're saving our marketing team time essentially. (laughs) Uh, So, but this is just, these are just the hardware features. And uh, what's really amazing about this camera is the power that's packed into our app. So our app has always been kind of uh, our, our hero statement. The ease of use of a 360 camera, being able to edit everything and reframe and share it all through the app, having all these auto editing functions, and we've taken that and we've applied it to this camera. So uh, one really cool feature that we have is, uh, is called AutoFrame. And, and again, a world, we like to be world's first at doing these types of things, but with AutoFrame, uh, this is our way of allowing users to automatically reframe 360 footage into flat two D content.
0: Okay, so that's so when you're posting it somewhere you've got a you've got a flat frame you could show that is just the the, the direction that makes sense?
3: Exactly, yeah. You take the best angles and moments from your three sixty video and you just post that. And and you know at at its core the advantage of having three sixty footage for, for regular flat content is you have a limitless amount of ways that you can edit your content and share it. So yep. one clip can be used so many, so many different times.
0: Now, does it tell the user, "Don't stand on the opposite side of the pretty thing they're trying to show," so they're uh, they do it right?
3: Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't show that. But there are some really great uh, tips available in the app that will
0: that will help folks who
3: don't have. Say, hey, stupid!
0: <laughs> get on the other side. You've got it backwards, right? <laughs> Talk to your AI team about that one. Well, well
3: noted. We'll uh, we'll put in the feature
0: request today. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, is this available today?
3: This is available for pre-order today, and it will start shipping in about a week or two. Uh, and there's three different versions of it. Now, the really great part is uh, there's a twin edition available. So for folks at home who are deciding between purchasing uh, a 360 camera or a traditional action camera but don't want to buy both, uh, you can now get two for the price of one, essentially. So the twin edition will include the the standard 4K Wide-angle module and the 360 module, along with the core and the battery, all for about 479 dollars, which is actually less than the price of a of a GoPro Max. Their 360 camera. That's,
0: that's actually not bad at all. Yeah. Now, how about this fancy pants uh, Leica? The Leica lens that's can, where you start to selling a kidney, I'm guessing. <laughs> well, it's not
3: bad actually. So we're we're uh, we love to give value back to our customers at the end of the day, right? So the the uh, Leica module will be available separately for purchase for $299. Okay. Not not a
0: whole kidney. <laughs> not a whole kidney. <laughs> that's a, that's not bad at all, really, when you think about what you're getting with that. This is a great set of stuff. I know you've got a million more things to tell me, but I'm gonna cut you off. Michael, this is uh this has been really cool. So the website is Insta360.com.
3: Yes, www 360com Insta360.com or you can go to any of our social pages at Insta360 to check out some of our cool content and learn more about the features.
0: Very good. Thank you, Michael. This is fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, I'm standing here drinking an old-fashioned with uh, Nathaniel Davis from Drinkworks, who uh, appears to have some way to make alcohol because you've made me a drink.
4: Yes, indeed. Yeah, This is the um, Drinkworks Home Bar by Keurig. So Drinkworks is a joint venture between Keurig Dr. Pepper and Anheuser-Busch. So think about it as the intersection between appliances and technology and the alcohol beverage space. I'm a fan of both, so that works out. As am I. It's uh, it's it's a pleasure to do this uh, every day and we've had a great CES. So basically, you know the Keurig model. One pod, one button, one drink. We've just applied that to cocktails. So think about this as cocktails by Keurig. Okay,
0: so what we're looking at, this is audio and video by the way, so I'll be describing more for the audio people. Okay. It, uh, it looks sort of like a Keurig uh, hanging out with some other electronic friends here. What do we got? How does this work?
4: Sure. So um, it's a plants, um that has, obviously we've got the pods, which contain our, our cocktail concentrate in this case. We source premium spirits, but we do it at the still or barrel strength before it's cut with water. So it's in very concentrated form. And what the machine does All the user has to do is load it with water, just like a coffee 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 machine. It pulls it inside and chills it down in an internal water tank and then circulates nearly at freezing and then holds it there ready to make many, many cocktails when you come home from work or if you have a dinner party or whatever. For breakfast, you know, depending on how you roll. It's got, exactly, exactly. I'm not judging. Um, It's got a small CO2 uh, tank for carbonated beverages as well. Oh, wow. So here's the thing. On the back of each pod is a barcode, which says to the machine, "I am a Moscow Mule in this case, and this is my recipe of how to make me." Okay. And,
0: and this is real vodka, real lime juice, and real ginger beer inside, but concentrated at the
4: still level. You said exactly right. So it's so it's pulled out. It's super test uh, high proof uh, vodka, uh, which we make ourselves. We're a distillery, a winery, and a brewery, and we manage manage all three. We do the development uh, in house.
0: He's dropping the pod in. You drop it's, the pot in. It, it looks like a fancy version of a Keurig. It's got blue lights. It's it's all shiny and everything. Well,
4: you know, we designed this thing, which needs to be obviously. Keurig is such a wonderful and powerful brand that people trust and know in their coffee. But we're both elevating the experience and taking it into a more adult context, sure, which sure. needs to be both.
0: It's not kitchen. It's fancy.
4: It's it can be kitchen. It can also be home bar. It can be man cave or whatever. But it's fancy. And it's fancy. And it's <laughs> fancy. So when you close, when you close it, it'll. Recognize authentic,
0: authenticated pod. So it actually
4: sees our quality trust mark, knows that we made it, and it unlocks the system. It says whether or not it needs ice, what size of glass to use, little nudge on things. Medium glass.
0: Oh, I wish that your your coffee maker told me what size cup. It's got little pictures, and I sit there going, I
4: don't know which one's which. We also like to nudge people to make sure that they're enjoying, you know, garnishing and presenting in the best way possible. So Moscow Mule, just for... Here at CES, we're distributing hundreds and hundreds of samplers, so I've got it in a shaker. But typically, of course, this would go in a copper mug with crushed ice. But it's flashing and saying... Copper mug. Of course. It's flashing blue and saying, please press me. So we'll go ahead and hit the button. What's happening now is it's pulling the chilled water into its blast carbonation chamber inside. We'll actually hear it. It's quite noisy here, and you won't quite hear it. Uh, heating it with high pressure CO2 to carbonate so the water. The there it goes. And it's water. about to.
0: Ooh,
4: that's satisfying. That's right. The the satisfying whoosh so now it's of pouring the drink. And now it drives the
3: nice
4: Got to get all the audio in here. Of course. And it tops up. In this case, so we make everything from. Like the from short, um, very strong, old fashions, cosmopolitans, uh, our tequila-forward margarita, all the way up to a larger 8-ounce carbonated Moscow Mule, and other bubbly cocktails. We've got a wine collection that we call Wandering Vine, where people said, oh, I love your complex cocktails, but give me a glass of wine for Monday or Tuesday. So we've got a rosé spritzer, uh, a Prosecco-inspired lemon bubbly with a limoncello, Uh, uh, liqueur uh, added in there, and on and on. We've got 25 and counting, 29 cocktails at certain seasons of the year. Huge variety just to make complex cocktails as easy as a push-a-button.
0: So I'm noticing, so this is a a, a long cylindrical tube, and it says it's got four liquid pods, so that makes me four
4: drinks out of each of these. That's right. And
0: you can keep these for
4: a while? Yeah, these are the, the, they're good for between nine and, and 12 months, but they shouldn't last that long in anybody's uh, kitchen normally. But really what people are saying is it's the freshness of preparing it on demand and seeing it being made right in front of your eyes that really gives you the impact of uh, uh, that people are looking for when they're hosting.
0: This really does look interesting. So uh, Drakeworks by Keurig, uh, what's the, when is this gonna be available?
4: It's available now depending on where you are. So, And we're rolling out and expanding. So we're in Missouri, Florida, California, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Europe, New Zealand no, not Australia? Yet. So we're, we're, we're st- India? St- sticking with the U.S. right now with our uh, Vermont manufacturing base for the for the distillery, and we're continuing to roll out. So if you go to drinkworks.com, we're constantly updating. You give your uh, email address, and we'll keep you apprised if you're outside of that footprint. Otherwise, you can buy online, including the alcoholic pods, which we can ship to your home. Oh, you can. Or you can find them at walmart.com, bestbuy.com, or in stores such as Total Wine, ABC, uh, oh, wow. uh, BJ's, Binnie's, so on and so forth. So we're in large alcohol uh uh, retailers, premium retailers that can also service the system, and we're in big box retailers that are just doing the appliance, and we're online for all of those things. Wow, that's great! And what's your price point on the Drinkworks by Curie? Um Two ninety nine MSRP right now. Really? Yeah.
0: Wow, I thought it was going to be a lot more than that. And uh, how about these pods?
4: The pods are typically retailing. Our suggestion is uh, $15.99 for four, but it depends a little bit on the market where you where you live.
0: $15.99, so 16 bucks for four. 16 bucks for four, so four bucks a drink,
4: drink, which is uh, a bargain compared to my local cocktail lounge for sure. And considering if you look around the entire, uh, if you look across the portfolio. It would cost about five or maybe 700 bucks to stock up your home bar with all the ingredients that we provide in our, in our portfolio. So I paid really four times you- that for a bowl of oatmeal this morning at CES. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's true. <laughs> all
0: right. Thank you very much, Nathaniel. This is very cool. Appreciate your time.
4: It's a real pleasure. Thanks.
0: All right. Well, let's sober up here and take a pledge break. You know, I talk about becoming a patron of the Podfeet podcast pretty often. You know the drill. You go to podfeet.com slash Patreon and you sign up as a token of your belief that I provide value that's worth a little bit of your personal money. Now, what do you get for that money? Well, I don't give you a hat or a pin or even a sticker. I don't give you extra content. I don't give you the inside track on what's going on at the Podfeet Podcast Empire, No, all you get for becoming a patron is the knowledge that you are personally one of the select few who help keep the shows going each and every week by helping to pay the expenses. You can feel warm in your heart about your contribution. If you haven't yet signed up to become a patron, I hope you'll consider doing it this week. Who doesn't need to feel all warm and fuzzy about themselves? Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time with four security bits with Bart Boo Shots. And uh, how's that plan to make the show short going, Bart?
5: Oh, the universe loved that plan. The universe is totally on board and completely cooperated, having no news happen. <laughs> oh, wait, no.
0: Not quite, right?
5: I, I, I threw out, I was so harsh in editing down my show notes, but there's just so much going on.
0: It, it, yeah, sorry. It's <laughs> <laughs> not your fault. Well, let's stick in then.
5: Yeah, so this is take two at at our new format. So uh, let's start with some feedback and follow-ups, and only follow-ups this time. So these are new stories that we've talked about in the past that have had something develop on them. So we've talked a few times now about FIDO2, and specifically iOS 13's support for FIDO2. And we said that it is now possible at a low-level API for apps to use the iPhone as a hardware token. So to use the iPhone as a YubiKey. And that is now something that uh, Google are allowing. So you can have your iPhone be a hardware security token for your Google account.
0: So how does that exactly work? You've got, I mean, I've got two-factor authentication on my Google account. I would do something with the phone instead of entering the Register the the phone
5: as you would register the phone as being your two-factor token and then you would have to you would then have to confirm on the phone that you're accepting the login i think hmm i haven't done it um sounds fun basically at an os level you will be prompt. you will be given an os interaction to confirm that you are happy okay um, Leo, I, I'm trying to remember, Leo walked through it on air and it worked. And it, And he said they, they had good things to say about it um, on Security Now, but I don't remember the subtleties. Okay. Basically, they set it up live on air and they tested it live on air and it worked. So that was good. That's kind of my takeaway, was it worked. Um, but I don't remember the subtleties. Uh, we've talked a wee bit now and we actually got some feedback even about the whole YouTube copper thing. Um So the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act in the United States and how YouTube is having stuff proactively marked as kids, doesn't get uh, tracking and stuff like that. Well, it would appear that that whole shenanigans and the $170 million fine has caught the attention of members of the US House of Representatives. And they seem quite as perturbed by YouTube's behavior of proactively telling advertisers they had lots of kids that they could Uh advertise at. Which is what they were caught doing to get that fine, right? Okay. And that seems to have poked the bear. There is now a bill that has been introduced into the House of Representatives of the United States of America, a bipartisan bill, which, if passed, would increase the age for COPA from 13 to 16 and introduce a right to be forgotten for kids.
0: Oh, wow. So basically,
5: your childhood indiscretion would not follow you forever. Oh wow! Now it's a bill in the house, so it has to pass the house, pass the senate, and get signed with the president. And there's no guarantee any of that will happen. But nonetheless, this is the fr- this is the first step in that you know school has rock how a bill becomes a law thing. So you know, it is it is a real proposal as opposed to a vague statement. They have written it up. It is has it actually been introduced into the House of Representatives. Wow! Yeah. And of the same big picture story, there was a really good episode of the Reset podcast within the last two weeks called The YouTubers Are Freaked, talking about the original YouTube issue as opposed to this proposed new law. So Mm -hmm. if people are interested, definitely suggest having a listen. It's about a 20 minute episode, like all the Reset episodes are. Um, I'm actually really enjoying that new show. Um, It's topical, three times a week, 20 minutes. It's always related to the news. Quite good. Tech news? Yeah, uh, yeah. privacy tech online, I guess, is probably a better word, because oh, okay. it, it could be social okay. media. Yeah, modern life, maybe, is, is the best way to say it. Um, we've also talked a fair bit about the various kerfuffles about human beings reviewing audio from our audio assistants, and Microsoft came out looking very badly last time, because they were not secured at all properly. Well, we now have a follow-up story that Microsoft have taken all of their Skype audio reviews into secure places. And I love the naked headline—the naked security headline, Microsoft now reviewing Skype audio in secure places, brackets, not China. Brackets.
0: <laughs> in case you were wondering.
5: Exactly. Um, something which we were all very excited about was sign in with Apple. Yeah, um,
0: where was that? Where'd
5: that go? It, it's still there. It's just, it's taking some time to ramp up and we now have a big new partner in the game adobe have just joined the team so you can now download adobe's ios apps and not create an adobe account but create a sign in with apple account instead Hmm. and use that to say get those shiny shiny fonts that you can now get via the creative cloud app
0: interesting so i haven't run into it yet on any app Mm mm-hmm have you seen it pop it up? It offered, anymore?
5: basically I had, I installed the app and it basically went, I we mean, you know, it basically gave me all the buttons, right? sign in buttons, right? Sign in with Apple, sign in with Adobe account. There might've been a sign in with Facebook, I don't remember, uh, but it was just on the list. Of, so the first time I launched the app, it was on the list. So if you're already signed into an app, you're not actually going to know that it's now offering sign in with Apple because you already have, you've, you're already signed in, right?
0: Yeah. I guess so. But I mean, yeah. if I, I, I'm getting new apps and if they want me to sign in, I'd be curious. I just haven't run into it yet. I remember being real excited yeah. after WWDC, but I haven't seen it yet.
5: I, I, the more new apps you install, the more likely you are to run into it because <laughs> it's only going to hit you on a new app. It's never going to hit you on something you're already signed into because you already have an identity. So they're not, the app isn't going to offer you an identity because it knows you, it has your data. It's going to let you carry on where you left off, which is what you want.
0: Yeah, I would defy you to suggest I don't download enough new apps. But <laughs> well, yeah, but do you
5: download a lot of apps that need you to sign in, or do yeah, you download apps that you question. just use?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I don't. I can't remember having done one in a I, long time that wasn't just and you know through a, a Apple for iCloud or something like that.
5: Yeah. So the other way to look at it is: when's the last time you opened an app and created an account with a third-party service?
0: Yeah, that's been a little while.
5: Yeah, and that's the problem. So, what they're trying, to, what Apple are trying to prevent, is you having to do that. So, if you haven't had to do that, it just means you haven't used the kind of app for which signing with Apple was designed to be the solution. Okay. Uh, another another thing we've talked about a lot is iOS thirteen got really quite assertive, shall we say, um, about its uh, location tracking privacy controls. I am in the camp of people who adore Apple's new approach, which basically doesn't let apps do it behind your back. Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, it is having a real and genuine measurable effect on the, ad, on the location-based ad market. Uh, Digiday did a good article where they interviewed people in the industry, and they were able to put numbers on what they see as a problem and what I see as a fantastic outcome. Uh, The whole article is well worth a read. I've linked to it in the show notes, but uh, I just picked out two choice quotes. Right now, opt-in rates to share data with apps when they're not in use are often below 50%, said Benoit Grouchko, who runs ad tech business Timo, where they create software for apps to collect location data. Three years ago, those opt-in rates were closer to 100%, he said. Higher opt-in rates prevailed when people weren't aware they even had a choice. (laughs) Emphasis mine. (laughs) Uh, Followed by another paragraph a little bit later in the article. Seven in 10 iPhone users uh, tracked by location verification business Location Sciences downloaded iOS 13 in the six weeks after it first became available. And 80% of those users stopped all background tracking.
0: Wow. Yeah, it works, people. It works. Interesting. Works. So I, I I would suggest a slight adjustment to it could be enabled, mm-hmm. which is stop asking me for the same darn app. might it's
5: an app you don't launch. My, I'm sorry? I, I, have, I, th- I believe I have figured out how it works. And if you, if you don't launch the app, so if it's in the background and only in the background for a week, then you get the pop-up. But if you've been into the app even once during the week, you shouldn't
0: get the pop-up. So I have an uh, August door lock. When I walk mm-hmm. up to my house, it unlocks. Ah. And when I leave, it unlocks. And all the time, hey, August has been tracking your location. Are you sure you're okay with it? Yes, 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 yes. I will always say yes to this. Stop asking me over and over and over again.
5: Yeah, And that's not an app you'd interact with, right? You have no Mm-mm. reason to open the August app. You just want it to always be on.
0: Yeah, the the only time I do is when something goes wrong and it's not functioning. So 90% of the time, no um yeah, that's one I, of the
5: edge cases you're right and there needs well, to be a solution to that
0: yeah there's a lot of those so like i'm using uh i'm testing out the newest tiles and i'm not going to interact with that app unless i need to and so all the time it's like oh I, hey uh, tiles tile's in your tracker well, that's what it's designed to do why are you asking me again so wh- i think you get into fatigue when they ask too often so that that could have a detrimental effect i think
5: I I in I no doubt that Apple will continue to fine-tune this to deal with that edge case. But right now, we're in a situation that's infinitely better than what we were.
0: Yeah. Can I give a shout-out to CNN? <laughs> sure. Uh, I downloaded the CNN app, and uh, I, I don't remember why I did this, but I happened to just go into settings, and there's something called privacy settings. It has okay, a switch. It says, do not sell my personal information, and it's a Ooh. switch. So it's it's defaulted to, yes, share data with third parties. But you could just turn it off. And it says, disabling, stop sharing personal information we use to deliver relevant advertising and content with our third parties within this app. If you would like more information on how we share data, please visit this section our Privacy Center and look at our third party vendors. Nice. I, I almost want to leave it on because they were so honest, you know. Is
5: that an interesting
0: approach. <laughs> I'm not going to. For but companies to
5: take, like. That, that You know, maybe there is actually value in not being sneaky.
0: Yeah, yeah. It gave me a good feeling about him.
2: Yeah.
5: And then obviously the other ongoing story is that social media continues to try to fight the abuses of their platforms. So Reddit has banned impersonation, but satire and parody they're okay with. Facebook and Instagram have banned an alleged brainwashing service. This is kind of a freaky service. You can pay them. It's persuasion as a service. Ooh. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting read. I, I can see why Facebook were like, e, this is too ick even for us. And I'm sort of left going, yeah, but they're basically deploying all the same skills you <laughs> deploy all the time to make your business model work. <laughs> but yeah. anyway. Okay. And again, Reset had another episode that I want to recommend, which is Facebook's deep fake problem. Okay. So that's again a very good episode of Reset, again, 20 minutes. So deep dives, um the first deep dive is one that has an exclamation point next to it, which means this is an action item. So whenever you see in the show notes that red exclamation point, it is a call to action. There is a bug which has been given the human friendly name curveball. It has been patched in the last in this month's our patch Tuesday updates. And if you are a Windows 10 user or a Windows Server 2016 user, you really, 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 really need this patch. So there is a crypto library that powers pretty much all digital signatures anywhere in Windows. And it had a bug in it, which allowed the one thing that a digital certificate should never be allowed to allow. Forging of digital certificates. (laughs) That's like literally the very point so this library underpins so much of Windows's crypto that basically it its effects were that everything from the padlock in edge and uh, and IE could be spoofed the digital signatures on say drivers or software or updates to apps all of that could be spoofed yeah. Which is catastrophic. The one small silver lining is that um Microsoft pinned the certificates for Windows update itself. So while you could spoof an update from Adobe to Flash or whatever, you couldn't spoof an update from Microsoft to Windows itself, which okay. is a small mercy. But nonetheless, you could browse to any website and a man in the middle could put a padlock up and the browser would believe the padlock and they it could be completely fake. They could mm-hmm intercept a software update from someone and inject any code they wanted and put it back out or they could publish you know pirated software that appears to be fully digitally signed and unaltered but actually be wedged full of malware this is stupendously dangerous so patch 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 patch
0: will do as a proof
5: of concept by the way someone uh turned uh, did a fake github which the which ie showed as being valid which just played uh, rick astley's would never give it up <laughs> and they also did the nsa for good measure so there you that'd
0: go that'd be enough to get people to do it right just be stuck with that yeah
5: so second deep dive the apple v encryption round two that continues, right? The US government's fight, US v Apple encryption, that is round two, is very much still ongoing. Uh, maybe I should just read the headlines before I go into my little discussion. So, since last we spoke, two, a mere two weeks ago, just Justice Department announced their findings in the Florida base shooting. Apple blasts FBI claims it was unhelpful in Pensacola shooter investigation. President Donald Trump says Apple should step up to the plate and unlock criminals' phones. President Trump at Davos. Davos has keys to the criminal mind. Apple says no to unlocking shooter's iPhone. AG and Trump lash back. FBI doesn't need Apple to unlock Pensacola gunman's iPhone. Privacy advocates lend their weight to Apple's case against FBI. Wireless encryption pushes decades in the make- making with trouble got the idea the FBI. here. <laughs> yeah. So okay, let's cut to the let's let's distill this to its essence, or let's what what I think is important. So, what we know is that actually, the phones in question. So the attack on Apple has continued, but we now know from Apple that they literally gave gigabytes of information to the government. So the government would make a request for information, Apple would hand over everything they have, and Apple insisted they did so in a very timely fashion, often within hours. And they say that in total, they've handed over multiple gigabytes of data to the FBI. So, and we know this, like Apple have never pretended that they do not hand over what they have to hand over. What they have said is that the only way to protect our devices, which are in the field exposed and at risk of being stolen from us, is with true encryption. So they protect those truly, and they physically do not have the keys. It's not that they are refusing to hand over something they have. It's that they are physically incapable of handing over something they don't have. Now, I don't know if the Attorney General and the President are just ignorant of reality or if they don't care and just want to use this as a Trojan horse. That is a judgment that each of us will have to make for ourselves. But that doesn't change the underlying fact. Apple, it's not that Apple are refusing to give something they have. And we also know that the US government have bought uh, gray hat tools for cracking older iPhones because whenever a bug is found, that gives a crack into the encryption. That's, you know, if, if, if everything was implemented as designed, they would be uncrackable. But hey, look, there's humans everywhere. So the older devices, bugs have been found and there are ways around it. And so we know the US government have purchased those devices and used those devices. We now know, based on what uh, the Department of Justice released, that the phones in question were an iPhone 5 and an iPhone 7. Well, they can crack those. They don't need Apple.
0: So this is blustering on the uh, attorney general's part. This is pure part. bluster. Yeah. So there's another angle to this that I remember from the San Bernardino shooter when when this came up before and the FBI was going after Apple, um, that... The concept of building a back door, of course, comes out. Right. I was going
5: so, to get to that.
0: But, well, I st- I, the the point I wanted to make about it was my understanding from back then was that there is actually a law in the United States that you cannot compel someone to create something. A company can't it be is, told you have to build this tool.
5: That, I, I'm trying to remember the, the subtleties, but basically, an interpretation of. Either a law or the constitution. Oh, I wish I had a better. Ma- I wish I was a lawyer. Um, I, I believe it's one of these things where people are pretty sure that that's what the law says, but other people are like, "Yeah, but if we creatively squint at it, maybe it doesn't say that."
0: Mm, yeah,
5: Do you know the way in law, there's not. It, it stuff isn't often black and white. Lawyers can find ways of away. wiggling. <laughs> um, so I don't. I, I my my recollection is that it, the consensus view is certainly that it is illegal, but. Consensus view is not the only view expressed by lawyers
4: mm-hmm.
5: um so we there are some other facts here we need to consider, right? So since San Bernardino, time has not stood still, and neither has technology. So the encryption on iPhones has improved, and specifically the secure enclave has improved and so the things that were done to crack an iPhone 5 don't work against an iPhone 11 because the secure enclave is better at its job. So it, the key for your encryption is created within the secure enclave, and it is physically impossible for that key to leave that enclave. So there is nothing Apple can do to get that private key out of that enclave. Right. So what could Apple do? If If we set aside the fact that this is a dangerous thing to do, and if we set aside the fact that this is probably an illegal thing to compel Apple to do, and if we set aside the fact that, best-case scenario, a law would have to pass Congress for this to be possible, you—it it is physically possible for Apple to write a special version of iOS, which doesn't magic the key out, but which doesn't auto-wipe the device on 10 failed password attempts, And it might be possible to speed up each guess a little bit. So in other words, Apple could make a special version of iOS that makes brute forcing less difficult. But some of the brute forcing protection is actually to do with how the algorithm inside the Secure enclave works. So there's actually a limit to what you can do with a hacked version of iOS. The hardware is still going to slow you down to some extent. But the hardware isn't what's slowing you down to having to wait an hour between guesses after 20 failed attempts. So you could pair it back that each guess remains a constant one second per guess forever. But at that stage, you're down to if someone chose a secure password, you're still down to tens of thousands of years. Huh. But if someone chose a four-digit pin, then it's gonna break in a few hours.
0: Right, right. So
5: that is something that is that that is technically plausible to do uh, another thing that is technically possible to do would be to pass a law to outlaw true encryption that would be a stupendous own goal because it would mean that it would be impossible for the u.s government officials to carry on with safely performing their duties as u.s government officials let alone mm-hmm. people running industries and people running political campaigns and people running charities and people running, you know, other campaigning organizations. I mean, the the fallout of it being impossible for anyone on Earth to be secure because you've outlawed security, that boggles the mind. But really, in terms of what is actually physically possible here on planet Earth, is you could somehow, com- you could physically compel Apple to make brute forcing less difficult. Or you could simply outlaw security.
0: But even if you outlaw security, you think the
5: bad guys are going to forget the math that everyone on planet Earth knows? Right. So (sighs) that is where reality stands. And then there's all of this bluster happening around it. And what's interesting to me is that, in terms of people coming out on the Apple side of the issue, we have the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, we have former NSA director, General Michael Hayden. I mean, these these are not crack, cranks, right? There there are extremely intelligent security experts who are horrified at the concept of it being illegal to be secure.
0: It's hard for me to make intelligent responses without talking about my views of our political system right now and of our leadership. I well, the, how do
5: I end with the silver lining?
0: Okay. I'm just explaining my silence.
5: Sure, sure. I sort of assumed that if I said something you find stupid and utterly wrong, you would say so. Yeah. Um, I do not believe it is possible for any law that even says that the sky is blue to pass the U.S. Congress. I am assigning no blame to that statement of fact. Therefore, I think that neither option one nor option two are plausible.
0: Yeah, it certainly it certainly does not make sense. I mean, the only thing that could happen that would help the situation would be to uh, immediately hack into the top level people's phones and to explain to them, okay, now can we go back to the way we were doing it before?
5: That is certainly a way of dealing with these things, right? You know, that's that's a bit like the old technique of, you know, your kid keeps wanting to steal alcohol. Fine. Give him a whiskey.
0: (laughs) See how that goes. Make him chug it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe we just make a couple of special phones for a couple of those special people you quoted and give it to them and say, okay, why don't you test this for us for a little bit?
5: I, yeah. Anyway, I, I, there are lots of links in the show notes here. Um, I particularly want to recommend uh, Mac OS Ken did a superb, and I've actually linked to the time code within the relevant episode in the show notes. Ken's take is only a few minutes long because that's what Ken does. But. He breaks it down extremely well, in my opinion. And Rene Ritchie deserves to be called out for an extremely well laid out description of the whole history of how we got to now and where we are now, and exactly what re- what's real and what isn't real. So I, I do want to call those two out in the recommended opinion pieces bit of the show notes. Okay. And for some reason, there's the word another as a as an empty. Yes, I've been just sitting there
0: looking. I've been looking for it, trying to find it in the code to take that out. Yes. Okay.
5: Okay, so a very, very, very related story that's our next deep dive. Did Apple abandon end-to-end encryption of iCloud backups because the FBI asked them to?
0: I love this one. So Reuters published a report
5: quoting sources within Apple and the intelligence agencies stating that Apple abandoned plans for full end-to-end encryption of iPloud backups. And that now, this is very important. The Reuters piece used the word may have done so at the request of the FBI. Now, when that Reuters report was reported on by many other outlets, the word may became did. So immediately, that's a game of, Chinese whispers going on here, or a game of telephone? I don't, I'm not sure
0: which. Well, it's way more fun if you can say that they did than may.
5: Right, right. And the original report also points out that there is another extremely important rationale for not providing true end-to-end encryption on backups. If you do, the backup becomes useless if the user forgets their password, which means it's not actually a very good backup. If you can't actually restore from it. So there is some prior here. Briefly, when Apple was still doing their first attempt at two-factor-style authentication, they called it two-step authentication. There was an option when you were setting up iCloud to have the only copy of the key rest with you, and for Apple not to be able to help you back in if you lost that key, and they made well, yeah, you print I, I remember it out that.
0: I remember that. And they said, you know, print this out, put it in your safe deposit box. Don't lose this. If you lose it, you can never, ever, ever get it into your account.
5: Yes. And that was an optional, an Apple experiment with it. And that was true end-to-end encryption. So what makes it end-to-end is that the only person with the key are the ends, which is you in the case of a backup. There's only one end. It's you. Mm -hmm. It's you to you. And the end result of that was many calls from very angry people into Apple Care, going, but I have a backup. What do you mean I can't get stuff sort of from my backup? But I backed it up. I don't, I, I, but my wedding, but my, my baby photos. But It caused horrific pain to customers who didn't really believe the warning, I guess.
0: Or understand it. Or,
5: or understand it. And Apple doesn't like it when their support doesn't make people happy, and when Apple went to two-factor authentication, they backed away from that. And that's years ago. That's a long time before we got to now. That's a long time before this encryption shenanigans all blew up in their face. So,
0: that so Apple already that this didn't ju- something didn't just happen because of the FBI right now. Correct.
5: Most decisions in the real world are not single variant. So. The fact that there are multiple reasons for Apple not to do it doesn't mean that the FBI asking them wasn't also something they factored into their decision. But it's by no means as simple as some news outlets are reporting it that Apple went, oh, yeah, dear FBI, we're thinking about doing this. The FBI went, oh, I wouldn't do that. And they went, all right, then. I can tell you for sure that's not how it went down. (laughs) It's way more. There's way more to it than that. Right. So. I want to highlight some very important subtleties that are getting lost. Your iCloud backups are encrypted. They, right, they're end not end. end-to-end encrypted, but what? they are
0: encrypted. Why do you no, say so they're important. not end-to-end? It's just that two people hold the keys. Correct. So
5: they are encrypted.
0: But why is that and not called key? end-to-end?
5: Because end-to-end means that only the endpoints can decrypt. So the end point of your backup is you. If anyone but you can also decrypt, it's not end-to-end. There's a third party who's also in the mix, or in this case, a second party, because a backup is weird. So normally end-to-end is like, I am talking to you. And if I can encrypt and decrypt, and you can encrypt and decrypt, but no one in between can, then it's end-to-end. But a backup, imagine that same conversation, but I am talking to myself, because that's what a backup is. It's past me talking to future me. So I am both ends of the end-to-end conversation. So if the only person who can get the decryption is me who made the backup, then it's end-to-end encryption of a backup. If anyone else can get it, it's not end-to-end.
0: I guess it seems to me that one of the ends, (laughs) if you will, Mm -hmm. is the place you put the backup.
5: If you interpret it that way, then you can say that it is end-to-end encrypted because it is definitely encrypted. There is no one between you and Apple who who can read it. But I think the way the industry would talk about backup encryption is that it's, from what you back up to the restoration of your backup are the two ends.
0: So, so I, th- the- I thought part of it was uh, whether it was encrypted at rest. And when it's not encrypted at rest, that's when it's not end to end encrypted.
5: No, 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 definitely not. Uh, in a- fact, end to end encryption involves an awful lot of encryption at rest. And right. not end to end encryption sa- also no, no. involves.
0: But that's what I'm saying. Oh, sorry, I might have cut you no, off. But before they both
5: involve, this. they're both encrypted at rest. Uh, Your iCloud is encrypted at rest. Your iCloud is encrypted in transit. Your backups are encrypted at all points.
0: Right. That's why I thought that was the definition of end to end. Was that it's it's encrypted at rest.
5: No. No, that has nothing to do with whether it's end to end. Um, Encrypted at rest is a separate question. And your iCloud is encrypted at rest. And your iCloud is encrypted in transit. Right, right. It's just that two people have the keys, which is why it's not end to end. Okay. Now. There's really good reasons for Apple to have the key, because that means that if you lose all of your devices and forget your password, you can then go through Apple's process for proving you are who you say you are, which could be quite involved and could take a week or two and could involve you, you know, sending scans of your passport and stuff. But even if they make you jump through many, many, many hoops, and it's a lot of effort on your part, it's still possible to get your stuff back. Yeah. If it's truly end-to-end encrypted, it is impossible. Now, there is a side effect to that. Apple are very clear about the fact that they obey the law. They say that at every, they say that on their privacy page, they say that in all of their policies, they say that they they never pretend that they will not follow the law, which is why they're not all in prison, <laughs> right. And so, if Apple have the keys and Apple receive a valid legal subpoena, they will act on that subpoena, use their key, and hand over the data. So that is the side effect, right? Swings and roundabouts. Yep. Now, another really important point is that all iCloud data is not the same. Apple have already, in fact, since they started both of these services, Apple do have a subset of iCloud that is genuinely end-to-end encrypted. All of your your health data in your iCloud backups is truly end-to-end encrypted. If Apple restore your iCloud for you, you will lose your health data. You will get back your photos, your email, your contacts, your calendars. You will not get back your health data because that is actually end-to-end encrypted. Same is true of your iCloud keychain. If you lose your iCloud keychain, you have lost your iCloud keychain. Apple do not have the keys to your iCloud keychain.
0: That that's uh, that's interesting. That's maybe another reason to like having a third party password manager. Is uh, for example, Steve has the key to get into mine, and I have the key to get into his. You can't do that yeah. with iCloud keychain.
5: Yes, exactly, and that's one of those things where Apple will give you a basic feature and third parties give you a way more advanced feature.
0: Right. right. So,
5: you know, everyone was like, "Oh my god, they, you know, one password has been Sherlock." And it's like, "No. There's now a solution for people who don't need the power of one password, but one password continues to do far more than Apple do."
0: Right. And but the it, same
5: is true of LastPass.
0: Yeah, it definitely LastPass as well. But yeah, it just didn't occur to me that if you lost your uh well, how would you lose your encryption key for uh, you would basically
5: it, it would right for someone like us who has 20 twenty billion Apple devices, it would be very difficult.
0: Okay, but if you had one or two,
5: so if you got very unlucky and you were you were traveling for work and you had your iPad and your iPhone and you got mugged and you lost both, and you'd been heavily using Face ID and stuff, and you hadn't actually typed your iCloud password in ages.
0: Yeah. Okay.
5: It can happen, and the, the particularly to people who are less technologically deep than we are because they will have fewer devices and they'll be doing fewer powerful things and they're more likely to have entered that password once and never think of it again.
0: Right. Okay. Okay, gotcha.
5: Yeah. Uh, then it's also another thing I want to point out. If you want truly complete end-to-end encryption on a full backup of your iPhone... You can do so, and you have always been able to do so. You go into iTunes, you make a local backup, and you put a password on it. <laughs> Apple will never get the key to that. It contains all of your data. It is encrypted. And the only person who has the key to that is you. And if you forget your password, you lose everything.
0: So now that there's no iTunes, which of the 12 apps they splintered into would it be? Finder.
5: Think? Finder that, that In the Finder where you manage the phone.
0: So, you, yeah, I haven't actually done that since... Uh, I should try that while we're chatting. Um, I, I, I know I, that... I haven't
5: plugged my phone in in years. So right, I, I right. Forgot to but
0: they did say that a lot of the functionality, especially uh, of, of managing the phone, now goes straight from uh, from the phone into the Finder, like you said. Okay, so...
5: Yeah, basically your phone shows up in the Finder sidebar, and then you interact with it from there.
0: Yeah, I, I'll just double-check while we're chatting that, that uh, backup solution is right there. look at that. There it is in the Finder. Huh.
5: All right. So another thing I, I think is important to say is that Reuters is reporting what their sources told them. Their sources said that they think that the reason is the FBI, but they can be genuinely truthful in saying that they think that. They don't necessarily know that. There's assumptions being made here. There's, you know, so... I do not believe that there is anyone intentionally lying. And yet, I do not believe the sources are correct. It's There's a difference between being wrong and lying. <laughs> and there's a difference between a misunderstanding or an assumption that doesn't pan out. So don't assume that I am saying that Reuters are lying. I'm not saying that at all. I don't think there's anything fraudulent going on here. This does not smell like that bloody Bloomberg story where there was no there there.
0: Right. Right.
5: I, I believe that there are three people who used to work at Apple who think Apple did it because the FBI told them to. That doesn't make it true, but it does make it true that those three people think that. Right. Uh, and another thing I just want to... This is not an argument that uh, that is mine originally. Uh, Rene Ritchie makes this argument extremely eloquently and has been making it for years. But it's really important to understand that there's a fundamental difference between our devices, like the iPhone, And our backups. Our devices live in a hostile world. That is their job. They are with us in the real world where we can be mugged, where we can lose things. They are with us on the internet. They are are in a dangerous place because we need them to be in a dangerous place. So we need those devices to fail secure. And the reason it's okay for my phone to wipe itself on 10 failed password attempts is because I have a backup.
0: Right, right. So That
5: really means that my backup should not fail secure. My backup should fail safe. It's not out there exposed to the world. It's really well protected by Apple it's sitting in their data centers, and they, they have a really good track record of looking after it. So actually, I want my backups to fail safe and my device to fail secure.
0: That makes now, perfect if sense, I yeah. was,
5: If I was the head of the FBI, I would want both to fail safe. And the one criticism you can make is that Apple don't give you an alternative. Apple basically have one solution for everyone. And that solution, I think, is right for 98% of people. But it is true that there are 2% of people who that is not the right solution for. And right now, Apple have nothing better on offer. And it's reasonable for people to say that Apple should give us the option of having true end-to-end encryption for those people who understand what it means and need that level of...
0: But when they had an option, that's when people got screwed up.
5: Right. And the the counter argument is, yeah, but how do you present that option in such a way that people won't wrongly interpret it and do themselves harm and cause problems? And so you can go over and back and over and back and you can have a legitimate disagreement. So Maybe they should just make can, it as
0: hard as two-factor authentication used to be and then nobody did it. <laughs> like you have to really, 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 truly want it. Yeah. And
5: then the other the the other other argument is that, well, if you're one of that two percent, you do have a solution. It's called you managing your own backup yourself directly on device.
0: Right. I did just verify, by the way, that Bart is correct. The finder is the place to go. You plug it in, shows it up in your left sidebar. After you trust your computer, you go to encrypt local backup, give it a password and and backup now. And then you could even have a uh, an offsite backup of that same data. But now that that file is encrypted, you're still you're still covered.
5: Exactly. So you could have that go up to the cloud using using uh, backblaze. Uh, backblaze or whatever. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or you could put it in your Dropbox if you had a big Dropbox or your OneDrive or whatever and have it sync all over the place. Absolutely. Because it is now an encrypted file. So without your password, there's no way to get into it. Right. So that means that backup is as secure as your password, by the way. So if your password is open123, yeah, it's about as secure as having a sign that says, beware the dog, but not actually having a dog. Right. But right. hey, that'll be it. Okay, again, lots of links and show notes to good explainers and these things, um but basically I think we've I think we've got to the nub of this one.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
5: Next deep dive. Oh, wow. <laughs> Cable hot. Another vulnerability with a fancy name. And if we were on the old-fashioned system, this would be a security medium for the simple reason that it's there's darn little we can do. But I do think it's important just to say the facts because this is uh, This is, the bug with a fancy name, it gets a lot of hype. So a serious flaw was found in the reference implementation for the drivers for a Broadcom chipset used in many cable modems. So every hardware vendor and many ISPs will make their own firmware for their modems. But they won't start from scratch. They'll start from the vendor's sample solution, as it were, and tweak it. And the sample solution had a bug and many, but not all of the vendors will have copied the bit of the sample solution that had the bug, which means that this bug is just ubiquitous.
0: But fixable
5: by them? Yes, yes, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. So there is a patch. The thing is, so I guess we should say what's at stake here is the fact that it allows a remote attacker to take full control of a cable modem which basically means they become a man in the middle who sits between you and the internet. And that is a very privileged position for a bad guy to be in. And it is not good news for anyone whose internet traffic is going through that router, sorry, modem. There is a fix from Broadcom. It is up to the hardware manufacturers or the ISPs who write their own firmware to apply the fix to their altered versions of that sample solution, as it were. And here's the niggle. Here's the real wrinkle. You, as the end user, do not have the ability to update your cable modem provided to you by your cable provider. All of us are dependent on our cable providers doing this on our behalf. Oh, great. Yeah. And I'm afraid I cannot find a way of saying that as good news. That is...
0: Now, usually when these kinds of awful things happen, there ends up being a list somewhere of these. These are the ones that have uh, fixed it, and the vendors, so you can start watching them.
5: Well, there is an official website, cablehaunts.com, and at last I looked, I believe there was one ISP listed as having definitely fixed the problem. I'm hoping that list expands.
0: Yeah. I bet um, D-Link will be
5: first. <laughs> well, You is- see, the thing is, in this case, it's cable modems. It's cable, well, it's modem, cable so modems, it's, not routers, yeah. Not okay. routers, well, right. If they made so the one, names I bet they'd not. be awesome. Although, hang on. Uh, modems confirmed by I.O. Oh, no, they're confirmed vulnerable. Shoot. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. not so good. So you and said there I'm is a list to say. I was like, oh, Netgear's on the list, but I'm afraid that's the wrong list.
0: Okay. So there is a uh, there is a list of, you've got a, that cablehaunt.com. Is that where they're they're showing the who's fixed it?
5: That's where they have the FAQs, and they're updating that as they learn more. Okay. So that's the place to watch.
0: Okay. Test and the other scripting. thing to do is to
5: phone your ISP and say, hi, have you patched me against Cablehaunt?
0: You don't by any chance know whether to fix uh, Fios? Since it's not the same kind of modem?
5: I don't know. It would depend on the chipset. And that is a question yeah. that is so many grades above my pay grades. <laughs> Vulnerable
0: no modems. Here they go. Nice. So is this being exploited?
5: Uh, last, I, 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 oh, I'm getting on a limb here. I believe the answer is yes, mm-hmm. because the, it, the details are right there. Okay. So, yeah, we're basically, we're dependent. Now, our ISPs can do all sorts of things. Like, our ISPs can mitigate the problem with a firewall rule on the edge of their network that stops the particular ports in question getting through. And that will buy them time to then actually fix the firmware. So there, you know, there are plenty of tools at the disposal of our ISPs.
0: Oh, I found the answer to my question. Has it been abused in the wild? Maybe we haven't oh, that's found. That's a great any, answer. Yeah, we haven't found any evidence that suggests abuse. However, a fairly skilled person could easily hide their exploitation. Okay. Oh,
5: hey. Yeah. Anyway, so there we go. Uh, okay. Final, final deep dive is a short one. A lot of talk about Google criticizing the implementation of Apple's intelligent tracking protection feature in Safari on iOS and macOS. So I'm just going to lay out the facts here, and then you can stop panicking. Um, stop
0: panicking so or start panicking?
5: Stop. stop. Oh, okay, okay. So I figured I'd do them in this order. We do okay. the table hunt and fish. then this
0: one. Okay.
5: So back in December, Apple released updates to Safari, and they tweaked their intelligent tracking prevention uh, to work around some issues that were disclosed to Apple by Google's Project Zero. And that is true. Uh, Google's Project Zero engineers have now released um, an additional report where they're basically criticizing Apple as saying, yeah, 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 you fixed the exact problems we found, but we believe that your core architecture is just a bad idea. And while you fix these cracks, it's inevitable there's more cracks to come and you're going to have to do more work to keep this secure. We don't think this is a good design. Huh. And what's kind of ironic is that the flaws in intelligent tracking prevention enabled tracking which is a real perennial problem and it's a problem we had with um the strict hsts the hyper http strict transport protocol which was designed to make the web more secure actually made it less secure as well through a similar tracking thing so basically it's possible for a website to figure out if it's being blocked by itp and because itp is machine learning and it's different on every computer the list of domains that are and aren't blocked is unique to your computer and is different on mine and is different on Steve's and is different on everyone's. Well, something that's different on everyone's computer is a fingerprint. Therefore, it's an undeletable cookie.
0: By fingerprint, you don't mean fingerprint. You mean...
5: A way of uniquely identifying your computer and therefore making you trackable no matter what you disable in terms of cookies.
0: Okay. So So obviously
5: that's a bug. So that's what they fixed in December. Google found a way of doing this, and Apple fixed the way Google found. And now Google are saying, yeah, but we think your fix is only a patch and that you have a more fundamental problem. That may be a valid argument, but right now today, the key quote from Naked Security, some of the attack scenarios suggested by Google would have required websites to invest a fair amount of effort into defeating ITP. There is also no evidence that any did. If you've been using Safari recently, it's unlikely your privacy was compromised. by the techniques Google discusses, basically, no. Apple engineers have some work to do.
0: But we're grand. Good. Yes. Okay. Phew. I mean, it, it does. A lot of deep time. It does also sound like the the vulnerability they found would make it be back to what it was before. Well,
5: no, because it's actually slightly worse than it was before, right? Because they can use it to fingerprint your computer, mm-hmm. they've actually made a new type of super cookie.
0: Wait, but they could fingerprint us before this went into place.
5: Well, no, they couldn't fingerprint us this way, right? They, so it's it gives them an extra way of tracking people. So fingerprinting is also something that's a cat and mouse game, and we're also trying to close those down. So... The last thing you want to do is open up a new type of fingerprinting when you're in the process okay. of closed down. Okay, so this
0: was extra finger, extra detailed fingerprinting beyond what yeah, they because had before.
5: Without ITP, you can't use ITP to fingerprint.
0: Okay, I'm, you're using the word fingerprint as though it means one specific thing, but it's a generic term. So that's where I got kind of confused. So before they could fingerprint us, right?
5: Right. So fingerprinting is something you want to achieve. It's a way, it's, it's a property of a computer that's unique to that computer. Like your fingerprint yes. in real life is unique to you. Yes. And there have been lots of different attempts to find a way of fingerprinting computers. So one of them is that browsers used to tell the website every font they had installed. Right. Different people have different fonts installed. So that was used as a fingerprint. And then the browser stopped a, doing that.
0: That's a, a type of fingerprint. You're saying this is a super fingerprint that's beyond that capability. But
5: well, it's a different fingerprint. It's just a different type of fingerprinting. Well, what sites do they and don't they block? Ah, well, that's unique across computers. Okay, that's another method for fingerprinting. Okay. Okay, anyway, yes. The point being, don't panic. That, that's where we're trying to get to. So, action alerts. So the curveball patch is obviously really important, and you should be applying all of your Microsoft updates this patch Tuesday anyway. Uh, But you know something? Microsoft patched a whole bunch more too. So if that wasn't enough to convince you, there's a whole bunch of other patches too, including some nasty stuff in remote desktop protocol. That's always bad when there's stuff in remote desktop protocol. Um, The latest Firefox also patches a nasty zero day so bad the Department of Homeland Security of the United States told people to patch.
0: (laughs) And they're usually so the ones who I, like those little holes, right? No, they like ones that only they know. Right.
5: And finally, some very popular WordPress plugins, specifically Infinite WP and WP Time Capsule have password bypass flaws. So patch 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 if your WordPress is running one of those because otherwise people can log in as admin without knowing your admin password and that's bad. Hmm. Worthy warnings. Microsoft have issued an advisory warning about an as-yet unpatched zero-day bug in IE that is seeing, quote, limited exploitation in the wild. There is no official Microsoft patch. Oh, yikes. But a for-profit company called Zero Patch are selling an unofficial patch to people who pay them for it, which is an interesting tweak.
0: Ooh.
5: Microsoft have published workarounds. But those workarounds have side effects. And you also need to proactively undo the workaround, or software update won't apply the actual fix when it comes out in the next patch Tuesday.
0: Jeez.
5: So I would say that as regular end users right now, the balance of risks are don't apply the workarounds, patch next past Tuesday as soon as it comes out, and consider avoiding IE until then.
0: I was going to say, well, wow, that Edge browser is pretty awesome.
5: It really is. Actually, we're going to talk about that in a moment. Wouldn't that be Um, the
0: the workaround would be don't use IE, use Edge, use Chrome, use Firefox? Unfortunately, that's not a complete workaround
5: because the same live it's actually a DLL what the bug is. And the the biggest user of the DLL is IE, but it's also used by Windows Media Player and Microsoft's implementation of the proxy auto-config protocol. So there are a few other sneaky ways of exploiting the vulnerability that are not IE. But on the whole, avoiding IE is definitely a good first step because the easiest way to exploit this vulnerability is IE. Plus, Edge is crazy good. It's a bug in something called jscript.dll. Imagine what that does. It's IE's JavaScript engine. It's broken. Uh, The FBI have issued a warning about extremely intricate scams being deployed in the U.S., to set up fake job interviews. And these can be like, you know, entire massive corporate websites configured. And basically you could genuinely believe you're interviewing for a job and they will actually go through the charade of interviewing you. And then they will get you to fill in an HR form, which has all of your personal information <laughs> it's requesting.
0: <laughs> That's brilliant.
5: It's geniusly scary. So yeah. the FBI have issued a warning on it. If you live in the US, probably well worth a read. Or frankly, the same concept could be applied elsewhere. So I think everyone should probably have a read. Yeah. Uh, peek Moments baby recording app has really messed up. If you're a user of that app, they have had a massive database breach. You need to read the link in the show notes. Mm. Finally, a cautionary tale from the real world. Uh, Brian Krebs relays a story from an African iPhone user who was targeted by a really well-crafted phishing attempt against his iCloud account, all built around the fact that he had genuinely lost his iPhone 10. And this is something that I think I've mentioned a few times before. It's when people get a stolen iPhone or they find a lost iPhone, they can't use it because of activation law. So they then need to somehow social engineer your iCloud password out of you because then they can use the phone they stole. And therefore, if you do lose a phone and you do make use of you know the feature saying, if you find this phone, please contact me or whatever, and you should still do that, But you then need to be on your guard that if you get some sort of email pretending to be from Apple proactively offering to help you get your iPhone, it's probably not. And so in this specific example, uh, there were a whole bunch of domain names that are garbage that were being used. But uh, someone who isn't paying attention may get confused. So in this case, it was maps-icloud.com. Maps-icloud is not an Apple domain. iCloud.com is an Apple domain. Uh-huh. So see how this works? And so you have examples that have been found like Apple.com-support.id. Well, that's not a real Apple domain, but it has mm-hmm. Apple.com at the start of it. Apple.com-findlocation.id, apple.com dash in dot in, assign.in, like you've all of these domain names that contain Apple words but are not actually the Apple domain. So Basically, the advice is go to apple.com and click the buttons. Don't be clicking links and emails pretending to be from anyone, even Apple. And in this case, the the message the person got was your iPhone 10, 64 gigabyte space gray has been found today. Well, they have the phone. They stole it. Of course, they know it's an iPhone 10 with 64 gigs of RAM in space gray. They have it. So, you know, again, but you can see how you could easily fall for that, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, but one of the things you early, uh, you told us early on was to always do the whatever the word is right before the .dot com .dot de .dot ie whatever. Right.
5: Ooh, you gone? Are you nope. having a Skype problem. Oh, I'm still here. Okay, sorry you disappeared mid sentence there for me, but you're back. I'm here. Okay, sorry. I, th- I thought you were good. Uh, what did you say last? Because I only caught half of it.
0: Um now I forget. Oh, that early just early on that you told us that uh we should always uh be watching for whatever's right before the dot com dot de.
5: Yes. Yes. And if it comes after the slash, it's not part of the domain name, it's probably just part of the file name. So if it's after the slash and it, it's so if the apple.com is after the slash, it's not real. Right. And if the apple dot com isn't the last thing before the slash, it's not real either. First slash is, is the magic point where everything pivots. Like, yeah, anyway. So yeah, again, a, a, a real world example from Brian Krebs as well worth a read because this is something people who steal iPhones want to do because thanks to activation lock, they now have to have a second step. Stealing your phone isn't enough. They also have to social engineer you out of your iCloud account. And that's definitely better. But if you fall for it, you've still lost your stuff. So be careful. Notable news. Windows 7, it is dead. Support has ended unless you are a large organization paying substantially for extended support, which will only last another two years and the price will double every year. Um, Basically, it is my opinion that this OS is now unsafe to use and we continue to get unsafer as time goes on. So it's time to upgrade. And uh, apparently you found a CNET link, which is also in the show notes, where you should be able to get to Windows 10 for free, hopefully.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a little convoluted, but yeah, you can go for free, so go do it. Yes. Why not?
5: Uh, Microsoft accidentally exposed a customer support database containing 250 million records, but thankfully, they were anonymized records. Fortunately, their anonymization algorithm had a few bugs in it, so some records that were mistyped in the original didn't get anonymized, but oh, they were mistyped yeah. in such a way that you could, you as a human could still interpret them.
0: Yeah, so if so it f- was Allison at podfee.com, it was anonymized, but if it was alison space at podfee.com, it wasn't?
5: Yeah, those kind of subtle little things. Were on the data entry point, someone just tapped something a little bit wrong, and so the anonymization missed it because it wasn't the pattern. But a human being has more intelligence than that, and a human being would immediately recognize, oh, I know what that is. So it's not Apple. Microsoft have proactively reached out to everyone who was affected already, and it would appear to be a small number of people. So thankfully, it doesn't appear to be nearly as bad as it sounded at first blush. The other thing is that the database was accidentally left on the internet without a password for most of December, but the logs of that database do not show any third parties actually accessing it. So yes, it was accessible, but that doesn't mean it was accessed and the logs would appear to show it was not. Okay. So they may have gotten lucky. Yeah. And we may have gotten lucky. So some good news from Microsoft. The Chromium-based Edge browser for Mac is out. It is no longer a beta. It is no longer a preview. It is out. I have been using it I am so happy to have another nice browser in the ecosystem for us to choose from. Some more competition to keep everyone on their toes. And in my experiments, what I have found is that the privacy settings are extremely human-friendly and well done. The darn thing runs clean and fast, and it isn't chock-a-block full of stuff phoning home to Google all the time. Nice. What I have found is that the plugins are not there's not a lot of them yet because it's very new. So the only way to get one password into it now is to use one password X, which means you're integrating straight to the cloud, not to the desktop app.
0: And you can't use fi- uh your fingerprint to do it. You have to type in the uh, the um the code. You have to type in your password by hand.
5: Yeah, I would believe that to be true because I don't believe a browser plugin has access to sure Touch ID. I sure don't have Touch ID. Sure it does. So I can't yeah. test. that
0: absolutely does bart so uh one password in safari i use my fingerprint all the time and i've been in contact with the uh one password people and they have the uh the good one uh, the one that will work with it in beta right now they just were waiting for microsoft to come up with the official one and then they can uh, they can uh support it so it will definitely okay. be supported
5: right but what i'm saying is that is the desktop app interacting with the browser which and the desktop app can interact with Touch ID, but I'm saying that this one password X is entirely web contained. It's not interacting with the desktop app, and that's why you can't have the Touch ID yet. Uh, yeah, it's a sort of leap. Doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, it's coming. I'm <laughs> completely tanked. There, but yes, they have confirmed that it is um, uh, that it is going to come. That you'll be able to use Touch ID, and that's all that matters.
5: Bingo. Yes, and so basically. This isn't a problem that the plugins are not available yet. It's just a side effect of being shiny brand spanking new, and that will take care of itself. Um, Lots of links in the show notes to help you get started. I really, really like their privacy page. The way they allow you to to set the privacy is just really clear and well laid out, very human friendly. Uh, Parental controls are explained nicely by iMore, and uh, an opinion piece I think is worth reading. Top five reasons to switch to Microsoft Edge for Mac.
0: It's really fast is my answer.
5: Yeah, and it's not full of Google tracking crap. (laughs) I like that answer too. Uh, For anyone who still thinks there's any life left in the SHA-1 hash, it's deader than dead already. They found a new, way more powerful collision attack against the GNU privacy guard using SHA-1. That is the one thing you shouldn't be able to do with a hash is make another thing that will go to the same hash. It's it's broken. SHA-1 is dead. Carry on with life. Uh, Google got very busy this month telling us about what they're going to be doing throughout 2020, 2021, and 2022 in terms of improving the privacy of Chrome. So the first thing they're going to do is they're going to phase out the so-called user agent string. Hmm. And this is an HTTP editor that tells the website about your browser and your computer, and it tells the website a lot about your browser and your computer, and Google want to replace it with something more privacy-protecting. Uh, And they're going to roll that out quickly. They're promising to have that rolled out by the end of 2020. So their user agent strings are basically just going to say, this is Chrome. And they're going to provide an API for getting at a little bit more information like, oh, yeah, and I'm a mobile device rather than a desktop or whatever.
0: There's a downside to them getting rid of that. And maybe they'll take it into account into the new version is that a lot of times you can't do things on the desktop now because... Companies have mobile only sites. So, so, for example, I've talked about Instagram. There's only you can only get to it through mobile to actually add pictures to Instagram, but you can use the user agents, which are just say, no, no, really, I'm an iPhone. It's fine. And then you get the button. You can actually use the site. There's a lot right, of reasons but, a, more, like but that.
5: A, a privacy aware a basically a deprecate having used string that instead of saying what it says now which is basically like what version of what OS you're using if it just say, if it's stripped down to just the basics of you know mobile safari you can still spoof mobile safari from desktop safari and get the same effect.
0: Yeah, that's why I said they if they, as long as they have a way to do that
5: and also these new APIs for, uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but the, the new API, you can just lie in that as well, right? You can just answer back and say, yeah, I'm i am a mobile. So it, to be honest, it may change the mechanism for lying, but not the fact of it.
0: Right, that's what I was saying, is as long as the, okay. there's still a way to do that.
5: I, I don't believe, I, there is no reason at present to, to to believe there won't be, which is good. Uh, They're also apparently going to kill third-party cookies completely, but they're going to take two years to do it because they want to have some alternatives in place, and the ad industry lost their ever-loving mind. Good. Uh, Just at the concept. Yeah, good. Um, Okay, so our friends in the United Kingdom are taking some very interesting steps to protecting children online. So their information commissioner's office have released the final version of their, quote, age-appropriate design code, which is proposed regulations for protecting children online. The code won't go into effect until Parliament approve it, but I have to say it looks pretty darn good. So it's it's full it's fifteen rules, but some some standouts are things like um, location services can't be on by default, and websites aren't allowed to use nudging to effectively pressure people into giving up their privacy. So they give an example like you can't say. Switch this on if you want to see videos that will really interest you. Leave this off if you just want to see random videos you probably won't like. You're not allowed to do that kind of thing. You need to give people clear and actual instructions or you need to give kids clear and actual instructions.
0: So this isn't so really code. It's
5: it's a code as in code not of conduct,
0: software code. Like code of conduct?
5: Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes. Or like code is often used to describe laws as well, right? A building code.
0: Ah, yeah. Okay.
5: Sorry, not law, regulation. That is a subtlety. Codes are regulations, laws are laws. But yeah, so it's like a building code for for the internet. That makes sense. So like, you know, you have to have at least so much insulation or your house is up to
0: code. Yeah, I got you. Yeah.
5: Uh, And then the final story is one I put in here. This probably wouldn't have met the bar, but you're my co-host. The National Institute for Standards and Technology, in the United States, otherwise known as NIST, have published a new document for you to go read, Allison. Oh, goody. It's the first version of their new privacy framework. And this is a framework designed to dovetail with their existing security framework. And it's intended to help American organizations to bring best practices into how they deal with privacy and also to help companies get themselves in line with modern privacy laws like GDPR and CCPA. So it's a basically a methodology for managing your privacy in a way that is actually workable within large organizations.
0: Nice. Now keep in mm-hmm. mind that, uh, uh, for the listeners, that NIST is purely recommendation-based, so yes. it, it doesn't necessarily change anything, but is uh, it's an influence. And not just an
5: influence. In this case, it's an asset. Because if you're a company who's decided that, oh my God, our privacy is a mess, where do we begin? How do we begin? The privacy framework is designed to hand you an answer. It's a process you can step through as an organization to help you figure out what it is you need to protect, how you need to protect it, what policies you do need, what policies you don't need. So it's a a process to get you from, ah, to, oh, okay, now I get it. Our privacy is under control. Okay. that is very powerful, but it won't force people who don't want to do the right thing to do the right thing. It just means that <laughs> right. people who do have a tool to help them get there, and that's valuable too. Uh, top tips, just two. Complete guide to avoiding online scams from Lifehacker. It's not complete, but it's still a good guide, and Lifehacker do good stuff. Uh, Naked Security have a more honest title. Five tips to avoid spear phishing attacks. <laughs> but they're actually good tips. One interesting insight I want to draw your attention to. The Norwegian Consumer Council have released a report detailing the data shared by 10 popular apps. The um, bottom line is that they describe basically the money quote is they describe the current state of play as completely out of control, harming consumers, societies, and business. Uh, A highlight from the report is that Grindr shares location, sexual orientation data with third parties that's just what you want from grinder
0: no you're not going to leave us with that at the end are you no 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 i'm going to cleanse your palette now (laughs)
5: okay yeah that was just interesting insights right so it is an interesting insight just not a happy one um there's an awful lot of talk about spacex's new constellation of satellites for bringing internet to the world and on the one hand, you have this utopian view that it's cheap internet for the whole planet and it'll make us all better. And on the other hand, you have astronomers going, and we're never going to see the universe again. <laughs> well, there's a little bit of truth in both of those. And if you want to understand the issues, how people are trying to address the issues, another 20-minute episode of the Reset podcast, The Internet from SpaceX. It is level-headed, sensible, clear, and at 20 minutes short
4: and oh, then you'll nice. have an
5: understanding of this because it's it's not a, it's not oh they're evil or oh this is utopia there's more to it than that a little and bit you'll more understand so the, if you listen yes
0: well before we close out do you want to uh explain the cool addition you made to the uh to the legend for the uh, yes. show notes
5: so there is now because i have discovered the joys of table support in markdown uh, there is now a table which is a text expander snippet at the bottom of every show notes showing what the little emoji mean. So I'm going to be making more use of emoji to help signal things without me having to use so much English. So what does it mean to have a red exclamation point? Why? It means it is a call to action. It is very important. What does a dollar sign mean? It means the article is behind a paywall. The fire extinguisher, the story has been overhyped in the media, or, quote, no need to let your hair on fire, (laughs) etc.
0: That's very cool. I like it. A legend at the bottom, so we always know what's going on here.
5: Well, very yeah, cool. And if I decide to get all creative with more emoji, they will appear in the legend.
0: <laughs> As they come in. All right, Bart. Well, um, I'm glad we were able to cut this down to a nice, short, manageable bite. <laughs> Third time's I, the charm. I believe I believe your goal will be met eventually, but I don't think I can think of anything you talked about that yeah. I would have cut out.
5: That's the thing, right? Because I was being brutal. I cut a lot of stuff out. But no, the universe just wasn't having none of it. So anyway, two weeks from now, let let's see how it goes. But anyway, regardless of that, until then, stay patched so you stay secure.
0: Well, I hope that was enough content for you. And uh, no, I'm not going to talk for the next nine minutes to make this be a two hour recording. We're coming in way under that this time. But it is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, suggestions, your reviews. I love playing listener reviews. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with PodFeed.com. Want to become a patron like we talked about? Get all that warm and fuzzy feeling? PodFeed.com slash Patreon. Maybe you don't want a weekly, monthly payment. Maybe you want to just do a one-time donation. You can do that at PodFeed.com slash PayPal. If you want to join in the conversation, I can highly recommend going to podfeet.com slash slack because you can find Bart in there too so you can talk to him about security bits and programming by stealth and get his nerdy and non-nerdy look at life. Or if you like Facebook better, we're there too at podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, but not on Super Bowl Sunday, there will be no live show next week. Don't forget... Head on over to podfeed.com live on most Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Join the friendly and enthusiastic Nosilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.